0: Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO, and co-founder of y Scouts, Max Hansen.
1: Welcome back to episode 82 of the Built on Purpose podcast, brought to you by Y Scouts. I'm your host, Max Hansen, the CEO of Y Scouts, where we find purpose aligned and performance proven leaders. Speaking of, today our guest is John Manslove, founder and CEO of Apex Trading and Bushel 44. John, it's an honor to welcome you to the Built on Purpose podcast.
0: Max, happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. Well, let's, um, let's start out by telling our audience what Apex Trading and Bushel 44 does.
0: Yeah. So, you know, Apex Trade and Bushel 44 are very similar software platforms servicing the B2B wholesale space. So, you know, Apex is uh, for cannabis and then Bushnell is for hemp, right? Although uh, very close as far as, as the plan, obviously a lot of different regulations. So we separated the two the two platforms. And what we do is really focus on streamlining uh, the wholesale B2B process from, you know, cultivation all the way to in retail, providing a comprehensive solution. That allows brands or producers to really stand up the internal operations of their company to run more efficiently and then giving them really unique sales and marketing tools to allow them to really, uh, you know, push their products out to to retailers throughout their market um, and obviously move their wholesale products and do it efficiently.
1: Awesome. And tell us, uh, tell our audience what your current footprint looks like, like how many states you in, and then we'll talk about, I I remember us having an awesome conversation, and and probably even this has changed, but we'll talk about kind of the differentiating, what you see different in different states. I won't get there quite yet, but just kind of tell us what your footprint currently is, maybe the states that you might be getting into uh, in the near future.
0: Yeah. So, you know, we've been fortunate enough to now have clients in 13 state markets. Um, our platforms are available nationwide and, and Bushel's actually available international as well, right? As, as hemp is changing as much more a global supply chain as it evolves. Um, you know, so we, you know, we've got you know clients from the West Coast where we're from, we're based in Portland, Oregon. So the whole West Coast, all the way out to the east, where you know, we're growing rapidly in the Massachusetts and in like Maine and, and other markets out there. Um, you know, I think as as most cannabis you know, as we look towards the future of cannabis, right, in the very near future, you know, everyone's really excited about the East Coast, of course, right? You got New York coming on, maybe around a 2 to $4 billion market in the near future. New Jersey, obviously, just past adult use. So I think a lot of us are ch- chomping at the bit to get into the, those markets and start to see them grow from a limited license market into more open uh, open market, so uh, that's a lot of where you know I think we're excited to move, and and where we've seen a lot of recent growth, specifically in Massachusetts, and uh, yeah, we're 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 looking forward to building upon that momentum.
1: Awesome, and then let's go back. I know this has been. Uh, I know you've told this story probably to a few people, but let's go back to how you got in the cannabis industry.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a pretty wild story. You know, I think first and foremost, like I've, I've always really been passionate about, about cannabis since I was introduced to it in, you know, high school, which is probably the same with a lot of people. Right. Um, you know, I think it, it was really, you know, at the time, you know, I've lived in, in Southern Missouri, so pretty kind of Bible Belt conservative area where you definitely didn't want to get caught, caught with cannabis. But, uh, You know, I just, I was really enthralled with it, right? I found it really interesting. I I love the idea of kind of a medicinal, uh, you know, product that can be a replacement for pharmaceuticals, or even what we're finding now is a, you know, move away from alcohol towards cannabis, right? And we know what alcohol could do on society and people. And so I got introduced to it at a young age, uh, you know, and, you know, as a consumer and, and everything of that nature through college. And then, You know, I had moved to Portland after college to to work in environmental field. So that was really one of my passions was uh, the environmental industry, right? So I was working on that side. And then, um, you know, in 2014, two college buddies of mine called me and they're like, John, we're going to start the Amazon of cannabis, right? And I'm like, well, shit, I should have saw the writing on the wall that was probably not the best. You know, anyone who says we're going to be the next Amazon is probably kidding themselves, right? Especially in an industry like cannabis. But you're like, you know, we're going to start this B2B wholesale space, this marketplace, right? No, there's nothing like it. Everyone is just, just, it's solely a fragmented industry. There's no tech around it. We're going to be the first, right? And I said, well, that sounds pretty interesting. It sounds a heck, of, have a heck of a lot more fun than, than environmental field. So let's hop in, right? And so I jumped into this company. I was the first employee for, with a company called Trative. Uh Tradive was founded in 2014. Uh, we went through canopy boulders, inaugural incubator. So their first cannabis incubator, uh, for startups graduated from that. And then, uh, went out and raised some capital and built it, built our platform. So, you know, again, we were a traditional marketplace, right? B2B bringing, you know, trying to, you know, create a network of just, you know, as many sellers as possible, as many buyers as possible in market, aggregate them on a centralized marketplace and let people do deals. Right? Um, That company evolved rather quickly, right? We we were fortunate enough to be first movers. We raised capital pretty quick. We raised a a decent size Series A for the time. Um, At that time, we scaled our company up to about 35 employees. And we even got into distribution in California, uh, much to my objection. Um, And so, you know, the traded story is pretty well publicized out there you know, we were, uh, one of our founders is ink 30 under 30 winner, right? We were kind of like this apple of cannabis, right? This darling child of the space. We were growing really rapidly. And then, uh, everything hit the fan really within about eight months of one another. So post our, a, one of the founders, um, had a religious awakening, uh, through psychedelics, uh, through a trip to Alaska and came back to, from his vacation, uh, thinking he was the next second coming of Jesus, literally. So uh, robe, big wooden cross, trying to pray with employees at their desks, all that kind of stuff. So it was quite an HR nightmare, nothing against organized religion, but probably there's, there's places for it. And maybe in the workplace is, is maybe not one. Um, and then ultimately one of the other founders is having a relationship with an employee that went south. And then that created some some issues legally for the company as well. And these literally hit within six months of each other. Uh, you know, unfortunately the company just, you know, I think they lost, the investors really lost faith in, in, leadership at that time. We had pivoted away from tech and got into distribution, which was not something they really were behind. Uh, and then ultimately you had these, these leaders do these things. And so, uh, in 2017, Apex was wound down or traded was wound down. And two weeks later, I started Apex trading with a new vision, new team, new model, and a new approach to what I thought the wholesale space really needed and, and deserved as an alternative to a marketplace
1: awesome. I I love uh it's an it's an incredible story obviously it's unfortunate outcome for tradive. Uh but the way you say it in, in is such a, in such a humble way. I think the other thing that has stood out just when I look at your profile is you started I think maybe it's customer success I think was your title and then you were pretty much, you know, running operations and you wound it down for them which I think says a lot about you as a person uh cuz I think if that were a lot of people they would have just maybe you know said i'm out of here too um so the fact that you stuck that out i know it's you know kind of implied and i know you're very humble um that you're not you're not saying that but that's what stood out to me when you first told me that story i'm like man this guy and didn't you also move to solano beach too yeah i had moved
0: down there you know i think on that point you know with the kind of failure i think in life you like often get to find sometimes people like what really gets out there in the press and what people see are successes right and I think with that, behind every startup success is failure and a lot of really a lot of struggle. And I don't think unless you're in it and you've done it, you recognize how much struggle there is, right? You cut it, like how many times you're right on the edge of failure, and then you make and then you make it super successful, right? And I think at traded it was super unfortunate, right? There were circumstances kind of out of our control. But at the end of the day, I wasn't going to let the failure at traded define who I am, right? And what I thought the industry needed, right? I think that was the big motivator for me was that like, it was the biggest failure I've ever had in business, but it was the best learning experience, right? You learn how to treat people, you learn how to hire and what type of talent you want to bring, what type of culture you want to foster, right? You learn how to be open and transparent with your investors, right? The good, the bad, the ugly, because at the end of the day, they're there to write, they want you to be successful, right? And so if you keep things from them, you, they're not there to help lean in with knowledge and expertise or just general support for you as a founder, right? And so I think all those lessons I learned, then I looked at it and said, okay, I know how hard this is. And I know how hard it's been. Do I want to do this again, right? And when I talked to my co-founders and I talked to my mentors and advisors, I think all of them said, like, you've learned all these things, right? You have a pretty clear vision of what you can do like you're young. At the time I didn't have a family, so it was different, but it's like, if you're going to do it, this is the time to do it. Right. That's what my dad kept saying. it's like, Hey, you don't have a kid yet. You're about to get married. Like, this is the time to take this risk. Right. If you're going to do it. Right. And, and I did that. Right. And we jumped in, you know, hundred percent and here we are right as, as a company. And, and so it's been so rewarding to kind of come out of this ashes and build something now that has been really, you know, quite successful. Um, and has made an impact on the industry, right? And that, that's really meaningful for us. And and so, yeah. And I think back to that, like I did, you know, I, I gave everything to trade it. Right? I moved from Portland to Solana Beach. I lived there, tried to you know reshape this company and rebuild it. And I think for me, it was like I love, even as a founder today. I think the most important thing is like how you lead, right? And one thing that I really, you know, obviously you need to be you know, you need to have the passion and you need to be intelligent, you need good direction and there's process and all these things. But ultimately the thing that I've really found is the willingness to do any job, right? From like cleaning the toilet at my office, right? To jumping into a sales call, to doing a success call to everything, right? You need to be willing and able to know the different roles. And I think what was cool at Trative is I got to be, the I was the first employee and I started here. And I worked all the way up to COO, right? And so while they were saying, hey, maybe we bring in this next level talent. And I say, well, look at John, man. He's doing all of it, right? He's built the company. He's the product owner. He's built the sales process. He's building the team, all of these things. And I think you have to have a willingness to kind of come in at the ground, do any job possible to move a company forward, specifically in a small startup. is like everyone is so vital. You have to be willing to jump in and support one another. And I think that's always been how I've approached it. And I think that then exudes through our team and the type of culture we create. Obviously, as you grow and you scale, I don't get to do everything in the trenches anymore, nor should I. But I think that a willingness to creates a lot of respect from your team. And it motivates them knowing like, hey, he's sitting up there as CEO, but he's not looking at this. I'm above you, right? I'm here with you, right? I'm supporting you. I got your back. I'm willing to do whatever you got to do at the same level to make this be successful. Uh, And that's always kind of how I've approach leadership and how I've definitely approached building our team and the culture that we've tried to foster here.
1: I love it. I love your humbleness as a leader. Obviously, it's been effective. You learned a lot uh, from that experience. I too, almost to a fault, um, believe in you got to be able to do anything as an entrepreneur. Like I've been through a list where I've like, hey, what are my strengths? And like, what are the things I love to do? What do I don't like to do? During that process, I had this awakening that was like, well, shit, I, like that list, while that's good to know, for down the road as we scale and we hire in an specialists. And, you know, to your point, you don't want to keep, you don't want to do everything you can't. But I think as an entrepreneur, you have to be willing to do everything. Like, it's great that you know what you're good at and what you like to do. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you're going to have to do that you don't like to do as you continue to grow your business. Um, moving into, I think, you know, the fact that, you know, the age that you were in 2014, you're relatively young. You said, you know, before you had a family, Talk about, and I'm sure there's a ton of them, but talk about some of the differences in the industry in 2014 compared to now. I mean, it's like stark differences. I mean, I can only imagine, but I want to kind of hear because I, you know, I was, I didn't get into the industry until about 2017, 18. So those three or four years, I can't even imagine what it was like uh, in the industry. But just talk about maybe at a high level, you might even have forgotten because it's so different now, but talk
0: about like the things that you do remember uh,
1: from the differences from then to now.
0: Oh, man. You know, it's really interesting. You know, I think the first thing is is product, right? I think that when we we heard this time and time again, and I was like, oh, I don't really know, right? That in 2014, the products you saw on the shelf are going to evolve and they're not going to be the same products you see in the future, right? And we're thinking eight years later, has it really shifted that much? Has technology really improved that much? And I would say, well, hell yeah, it has, right? Think about minor cannabinoids, right? When you're thinking back in 2014, you're not seeing maybe some CBD stuff, right? Potentially, but you're not seeing CBN. You're not seeing THCV. You're not seeing all these minor cannabinoids. You're not seeing an emphasis on like reintroduced natural terpenes, right? They, they had to force that, right? And so there were this, I think there's this move of that, like the products have evolved, right? The way they're being produced is more sophisticated. There's more technology in it, right? The delivery devices are changing the way if you're eating an edible rapid delivery, right? The way that it can you know impact the body at a quicker time. So I think that we're seeing this evolution of product and innovation that is changing. Now, yes, it's still similar, right? It's an edible, it's a drink, it's a flower, it's this, right. But the way that they're being produced, right. The ingredients the nutrients, the inputs have evolved, right? And I think we're going to continue to see that, especially as you start to see more of like a pharma angle kind of come into the space, right? And we start to see this evolution there within kind of the nutraceutical or neutral, you know, side of, I don't know if you can necessarily, it will always be defined pharma or not, but it'll be in that range. And so I think products have evolved. I think they'll continue to evolve. I think the other thing is the operators, right? Have really adjusted, especially as we're seeing on the East Coast, right? In the early days in 2014, the majority of people in Colorado or other markets, the West Coast, who were getting licenses, they came from the illicit market, right? They're the people who pioneered the space, the ones that got us there. They had the footprint. They had the bandwidth. And ultimately, the government wanted them to participate, right? That was the big motivation is to get rid of this illicit market, right? And so what you had is operators who knew the plant and knew how to produce products, right? But maybe weren't sophisticated on the actual business side, right? They weren't having to pay taxes before. They weren't having to have technology, right? The guys in Humboldt, and probably there's still a good swath of them, the new girls, the guys in Humboldt who grew it, they'd have their harvest, someone would fly over from New York in a van, buy everything and go, right? It was a pretty easy deal, right? And even the cannabis sold itself, right? Now, in the early days, now it's completely different, right? Now the operators are realizing like, for me to be successful, I not only have to think about my cost of production, my cost of sales, my energy, my inputs, my, you know, my facility costs, everything of that nature to try and make sure that we're producing the best quality product, the lowest price possible, right? But on the other side is then once we harvest and we produce it, we have compliance, we have to see to sale, we have to do tax reportings, so we need a CPA or some accounting person in staff. And then ultimately, we got to get a salespeople out there to go and sell this product and then figure out how to distribute it. Right. And so we've seen this big evolution from an operator side is either people who came from illicit or like, okay, we have to evolve as owners and operators here. And so they're getting more sophisticated. Right. And they're looking at tech. They're looking at bringing in other talent outside of cannabis to help them run and scale those businesses. And then on the other side, you look at the East Coast. They didn't have a big medical market that was existence for 20 or 30 years. Right now, there was a market, but it wasn't a medical market. And so a lot of these operators now, it's actually, it's big business, right? These are people coming from additional industry who see an opportunity and they're coming into the space, right? So they are going, they're kind of the opposite. It's like, we need to go back and get really great talent to help us produce great products and that knowledge, but we know everything out. We have the other side. We know systems, we know process, we know all this and, and scale. And that's where, you know, what's been really interesting is the operator side and the differences between East and West, right? Um, I think the last is like the criminal element and the, um, and the stigma, around cannabis when i first joined when i first started enter the cannabis industry in 2014 it was one of those things when people were like what do you do i'd always be slightly still i'd be kind of nervous about it right like okay do i say this is there a stigma here with this person like you know my family right what's my family gonna think and i have some very conservative parts of my family i'm like oh my gosh am i gonna be like the ugly duckling or the person you know the little you know, a child that, they, that no one wants to talk to and doesn't want their kids to be around because in the cannabis industry, this stigma, right? And I think we start to see now this quick evolution of the stigma starting to go away where people get really interested. Oh my gosh, you're in the cannabis industry. What do you think about it? Oh my God, this evolution, right? And they start to kind of generally embrace it, even if they're not consumers, where they're not necessarily like looking at it as this very illegal kind of thing that's going on that people shouldn't be in, right? And so I think stigma is the other piece, which is cool to see just the embracing of cannabis, across cultures and across consumers, across demographics are quickly changing and shifting from when it was more kind of 20, 30, 40 years ago, like long time consumers. And now you're starting to see people come back who maybe consume cannabis in the seventies and getting reintroduced to it. Right. Or people who have never used cannabis before are starting to say, Hey, gosh, I'm on Oxy or I'm on these pills or I'm on these things, or I'm having trouble sleeping. And, oh my, and then they're learning about the plant. They're learning about the benefits. And now they're you know, enjoying the benefits of what the plant and the products can deliver. And so we see this evolution. it's so cool to see how quickly the space is evolving. And even now, right, like the market dynamics are insane. And we're seeing, especially on the West Coast, a huge pressure on producers to stay alive. Right. And, and so now we're seeing even differences today compared to like what market forces are impacting growth and scale and prosperity of businesses compared to what they were three or four years ago. Right. And so it's very, it's ever changing dynamic. And I think what's cool is we're all entrepreneurs. We're all building this thing together and ultimately pivoting and adjusting as, as the market changes with it. Right. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a lot of fun for sure.
1: Awesome, man. What, what some great points shared there. Uh, I think the stigma sticks out to us a lot at what we do. When we started recruiting in 2017, 18, we you know we we're it's we c level roles so we we're we we're you know calling you know leaders from you know big consumer brands and uh we we uniquely take people through a discovery process on the front end but we had to adjust our process because we had to like figure out whether this person like what their view on cannabis was now we don't we don't have to do that i mean it's to, it's it's like night and day but i can only imagine i'm talking about 2017 or 18 you're t- this is 4 years you know earlier which we always talk about, you know, cannabis years are like dog years. So it's, you know, almost like a quarter of a century, uh, you know, in sophistication and just people's views and stigma. So, uh, that's awesome. And I think the other thing, you know, I've been, um, same with you. I mean, I've, you know, started, started, uh, using cannabis to a certain degree in high school, but what I'm learning now, I'm still learning what things like to, to use and how to use it. You know what I mean? Once you figure out what you like, Sometimes you kind of get stuck in that. And there's so many different ways and areas to explore. That's why it's fun to obviously go to the dispensary and kind of try some new stuff and figure out what uh, uh, what other stuff. So even experienced cannabis users, I think, are learning a lot um, with you know the different products and the different things that are coming out now, which is pretty awesome.
0: There's so much education, right? And often you're relying on the butt tender and their knowledge and expertise to give you recommendations and understand who you are and ask the right questions. And so, like, I think there's some tech that's coming into play. There's a lot of solutions that are starting to evolve in helping a consumer know or identify with the products and the brands that they really, that are, are the right fit for them, right? Instead of relying on this kind of mid-20-year-old bud tender to tell you what to consume, right? It's like, is there data? Is there education? Is there data? Like, what is there that could help me understand instead of just someone's personal preference of, like, the fire flower, that great product that came in, or, you know, the brand that maybe snoozed them with extra samples and now they're pushing their product to you even if it's not the best fit, right? Which happens. So I think those things are evolving as well. And you're right. It's like, I think we're going to start to see this thing that I hope will help broaden the consumer to more products and maybe to experience, you know, maybe like I've always been a flower person, but I didn't know that these transdermal patch could really help me with my lower back. I didn't even try it, right? And so I think it will both from the consumer today help them expand upon other products that could benefit them. More on a medicinal side, I think, on that is that education. And the other side, the people who've never used cannabis, right, the more information you give them, it helps, you know, decrease the stigma, it helps give them more comfort. And then ultimately, the first time they try it, it delivers what it should, right? The last thing you want is someone to come in, not realize the potency level on edible, eat a 10 milligram edible, first edible they've ever eaten, you know, ever, and then get rocked, right? And they're like, whoa, that was really scary. Yeah. That's the piece, right? That's where I think we've got to improve, uh, what we're doing there. And just, and that's the education piece. And I think we're all, you know, the space is evolving quickly towards that. And, and it's, a, it's going to be an exciting kind of future to see where it goes for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm amazed by is, and I don't know why I, I, I've had a couple conversations with you, so I don't know why I'm surprised, but your knowledge of everything about cannabis is incredible uh you run a tech company that helped you know happens to be in the cannabis industry but your you know just your holistic knowledge is is awesome we could we i could talk to you forever because that that patch that you're talking about i'm like i've never tried that my lower back's kind of hurting right now from working out so uh awesome exchange there let's talk about apex trading um Let's talk about what problem. And obviously, you had the advantage of the, the trade of experience. Uh, you know, good, bad, and, and different, and and positive with the, the the learning moments that you talked about. But what was the original problem that you were kind of trying to solve it with Apex? You know, it kind of started to go down. Like what you guys have
0: built. Yeah, totally. And you know, I think that the big thing that we recognize is that marketplaces have value, right? They really do. They're great for discovery, right? They're great if I'm a buyer wanting to just shop and see what's out there to find a great deal, right? They're they're great for, or if I'm looking for maybe a new vendor, I've got a shelf space gap that I'd like to fill and I want to just go into aggregated marketplace to see this, right? I think there's a lot of value. They're very buyer focused at the end of the day, right? And we really understood that, okay, if we're going to be successful, at the time when we started Apex, you know, Leaflink had then scaled up, right? They essentially captured all the market share traded left behind when we shut down, right? And then they had raised a lot of money and, and become a first mover advantage with the marketplace. And we really looked at that and said, OK, they're the leader in the B2B marketplace. They're super well capitalized. They got I don't know if they had founders fund backing at that time. I don't think they did, but they did later. Right. And it was a good decision ours not to go and directly try and compete with them with the same model. Because in, ultimately in a state where there's intrastate commerce, is there really room for multiple marketplaces when you're talking about 100, 100 brands and 300 retailers? Not really, ultimately, in our, our thought. So we said, is, well, let's offer something different, right? When I was at Traded, the common thing that I heard is objections to what we were doing in the marketplace. I've worked so hard to build my retail base and my relationships. Why would I send them to a marketplace to see other competitors, right? It was a huge piece, right? It's like, hey, I have this relationship. I need to protect this relationship. And what you're doing is essentially sending my buyers into an environment where they can see my competitors and ultimately shop me on potency and price, which it happens, right? That's how buyers shop typically. The other side was from the craft brands and the craft producers and all of that side of the market, right? Was I do that's not how I sell my products. I can't stand out here. I can't tell my story here. It isn't how I sell. I am full about that other piece, right? And so we said, well, if that's the law, if that's the objections we're getting with the marketplace. So we're hearing this from really big people all the way down to small craft across every type of supply, every type of supplier, right? From cultivation, extraction, distribution to product. Well, then we need to offer something different. And so what we really did is the vision was, you know, we, we created this, you know, essentially a custom storefront solution, right? And so kind of like a Shopify to an Amazon, right? And so essentially in a sales model, allowing the brand to design and tailor their own interface, their own storefront, right? And then from that, be able to dynamically list products, prices, discounts, et cetera, down to each individual buyer. Because we also understood that when you're selling, each buyer might have a different price, might have different inventory you want to see them. It's super complex, especially with variable skewed products. So anything that's essentially not an edible or a drink or a topical is variable skewed. And there's a lot of dynamics within how those products have to be managed and sold and marketed. And so we felt like the marketplace was falling short there. And so we did Is we launched the you know, the storefront solution, which allows that brand to own the entire buyer experience, send them marketing or emails or links, allow that retailer to just click in and order and only see that brand's products, not get exposed to any competitors, uh, and then have that menu tailored to them. So it aligns exactly what they've already agreed to with that brand. And so that was the model. To, diff, to kind of differentiate from the marketplace. And then since then, it was really on the back end, we have this really robust, almost ERP. I think ERP gets used extremely loosely in cannabis, uh, which I think is, is very wrong and misleading on a lot of bases. But we also have this other side is that understand that every market's different. Every business operates a little differently. There's a very big lack of standardization across things, right? And so what we understood is that While we have inventory management, a CRM and a marketing tool and workflow and task management, all these other suite of features, every single one of those features has to be able to adapt to the business. You can't just say, well, this is inventory. This is how it's managed on every SKU and every product category across every state. It doesn't work that way. Markets are different. They have different laws. They have different regulations, packaging requirements, minimum, like potency sizes, all these things. So you had to make it also agile. And so we actually created all of our features and suites where they can wrap around the business and be able to be customized to that business's processes and wants and needs. And I think that's where we've really been successful is that we allow a brand to own the buyer experience to not send them to a marketplace. And then ultimately on the other side, internally we're able to customize every feature to meet those brands processes, to allow them to kind of spin up and run a more streamlined and efficient business. Um, Let's allow us to have clients like Air and Leaf, some of the biggest MSOs, right? All the way down to your smallest little mom and pop craft grower at Humboldt or Eugene, Oregon or somewhere like that, right? That's old school. So it's been able to address the needs and wants of any size business and then ultimately be able to be agile enough to uh, to meet the requirements within each individual state based on on what's what's needed there as well. And
1: talk about for our audience that uh, isn't super familiar with your model. Talk about the different stakeholders within the marketplace, because obviously there's you know th- there's several of them from different angles. I, I love how you guys differentiated uh, from your competitors and kind of customizing that storefront. But talk about the other stakeholders that are involved, both on you know Bush of forty four, but same model, same platform. But uh, for Apex, like talk about the different stakeholders involved.
0: And stakeholders you mean kind of like client types or cohorts. Yeah, there's, yeah, different, uh, yeah. yeah, the
1: different 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 people within that uh, s- that uh, platform.
0: Yeah. And so what's kind of neat is that like, you know, some of our competitors, some other solutions really focus on the in-sale to retail, right? So that last part of the supply chain, the wholesale supply chain, which is retail, right? And so, and that's great. But I think ultimately what we really want to do is create a solution that addresses the need throughout the supply chain, right? And that begins at cultivation, right? And so we're saying, okay, well, a cultivator is going to sell tram or product to an extractor, Right or the cultivator might sell direct to retail. But at the end of the day, the cultivator might also sell to other cultivators, right? Through genetics and clones, et cetera, right? And so we said, okay, well, we need to create a solution that allows cultivators to sell to each channel, right? And so it begins at cultivation and ultimately from cultivation goes to extraction, right? From extraction to product, from product to distribution, distribution to retail. But within that, right, depending on the state, California is a little unique, most are, more open, meaning that like, while a cultivator might sell to an extractor, they might also sell to a product manufacturer. They might also sell a distributor and they might also sell to a retailer, right? And so with our inventory system and our CRM, we've created the ability for a grower to manage and actually display only certain products depending on where it's moving in the supply chain and dynamically price it based on that. And so we've really tried to holistically address the needs of the entire supply chain. And for us, what we really think is that ultimately, by like going back to the origination of the product, the plant, right? And focusing on solving some of the needs there, it positions us for the future. And, I, and cultivators who might listen to this, I apologize, but the ultimate commoditization of flour, right? And when that becomes a commodity, if you don't have the data and the understanding about how that bulk product is produced and moved and what characteristics determine prices, right? And have the data then in the background to help substantiate or build up and justify those prices at market... Then, you know, I don't think you're in a position to build what the future of the market might become. And that's something we're always cognizant of is this idea of, you know, when and if the flower side and bulk exchange side becomes a commodity, who's going to be in a position to actually create a solution to, to, for commerce around that, right? Product grading, all the typical commodity trading type things. And we feel like by having a more holistic approach, we'll be in a position to do that in the future.
1: I love it. I love it. Talk about the other thing that was interesting because uh, I've had the uh, luxury of talking to you a couple different times. How would you describe the culture at Apex?
0: Yeah. You know, I think what we've really tried, it's, you know, the first thing is it's a very plant first mentality, right? And so my employees, they don't have to consume cannabis, right? Like literally, like I, hey, no problem, right? But what you do have to do is say you have to have passion. You have to have some connection to the plant, right? Meaning, do I have a family member? I think everyone now has someone that they know has been impacted by cancer or some type of disease, right? Who maybe found cannabis as an alternative or a way to help them through that time, right? To deal with pain, to help with appetite, whatever it is, right? There's this connection of saying, I have someone I know who's dear to me who benefited from cannabis. I have a passion to get that into more people's hands right to build the plant and build and make this plant right can heal the world right this mentality of it can heal the world or it can at least heal one person's needs right and ultimately through that can heal the greater masses so i think for us is this idea you need to be you have to have a passion about the industry right it's so hard in a startup and even more so in cannabis if you don't have that passion you're not going to make it right you just won't make it we're too demanding we're you know we have we ask too much of our employees that passion is incredibly important, right? And I think the other side is, it's a passion for the plant, it's a passion for the client. I think you know, was something that we take a ton of pride in is providing the best customer service, hands down of any industry, of any software out there, period, right? And our clients will say this time and time again, is that anytime I need support, you're there. Anytime. I need training. You're there. You reach out proactively. The moment we have all this tracking, we're like, hey. Well, the moment we see something slightly like a flag on an account, we're there. and We're helping. We want to help that account, right? They're like, gosh, how'd you know? And we're like, because we're tracking. We're here for you, right? And so I think for us is that idea of like the plant and the passion for the client, delivering the best service possible, both the best technology, but then also the best customer service and sales experience we can. Um, and it's something that I think those two kind of pillars. Have allowed us again to be pretty successful as a super small company, right? We're thirteen employees, so we're very small, right? But and we have over two thousand clients. But uh, that passion is what has allowed us to scale and and deliver what we think is a a great platform and and a great service that clients enjoy.
1: Awesome, I love it. Talk about you hit on a little bit there, but and I'm sure there's lots of them, but just the, the ones that stick out. What were some of the biggest challenges while you were building your product? Like were some some of the complexities where you're like, holy crap, this is a little bit more complex and we thought, and then you had to solve that solution that, you know, solve that with a solution as well.
0: You know, I think the thing is, is that like, by being very engaging with our clients and wanting to hear their feedback and that customer service thing, you get with a hell of a lot of suggestions, right? Lots of suggestions. So you could like, we always say we have a, we have a development roadmap a mile long, right? Anyone is always going to say that. We've shortened it down quite a bit. But I think the thing that we've really looked at is that like in the early days was, Look at it and go, oh my gosh, we're getting all this feedback of things that we need to do, how we can improve, what we can build, what's going to benefit an individual business, right? But then taking all of that, aggregating it, and then weighing it a value, right? Okay, here's this one account. We really like these people. They're a great brand. They have a lot of value. Do we want to do like development based on their needs or do we want to make sure that we're looking at things holistically of what's going to benefit everyone and prioritize those before others, right? And so I think in the early stages of tech, especially in an industry is like new and emerging and as kind of dynamic as cannabis, um, prioritization is really key, right? And focus is really key. Um, I think that we, you know, did a really good job having obviously been in the tech cannabis space prior and then having been a product owner really well at that, right? And really being able to weigh things. So I think it's always a challenge. Um, and then ultimately, I think the other side is getting people to, to adopt and see the value, right? And, and this comes back to the sophistication piece is that there's a lot of operators and a lot of our early clients, right? The kind of legacy operators is that they look at us as the value is the sale, right? Like, can I get a new sale? Can I use this tool to get new sales, right? Are you bringing me new sales, right? And we're like, well, yeah, we've all these tools enable you to do that. But it was, it's hard to sell on efficiency and get people to recognize the value of efficiency and the cost of sales, right? If they don't understand it internally, then it's really hard to sell them on that on a platform, right? And so getting people to recognize all the steps they're doing today, and if they were to consolidate everything into one centralized platform like we deliver, the value of efficiency that would deliver for their company and actually putting a dollar to that, Right more more often than not they put a value on that sale and not efficiency and recognizing like oh my gosh if i lean into this tool more instead of managing my inventory in three different areas or instead of giving buyers four different routes to order and then having to do all these things can you know try and consolidate and keep things accurate etc and how much time i'm spending here if i just put it all in one spot i could get the reporting i want i know exactly where our orders are i know exactly what each team member needs to do all of these And so i think that's something we're always challenging with and looking to overcome with the people I think it's just the nature of the industry. And I think you face this in a lot of industries as well. When tech starts to come into it and they haven't had it before is there's a, there is a kind of a, a pushback against it. Right. I think you, you just typically overcome it as the market evolves. And as people see, oh my gosh, this is super important. So I think that's probably where some of the bigger challenges for us. And then outside of that was just, you know, I think raising capital in this space is always a struggle. You know, I think overall is, You know, in cannabis, you have a limited pool of investors who can even touch the space or want to touch the space, right? Of those, how many actually have funds or deployable capital, right? Of those, how many like or you align with what their thesis is, right? You don't have overlap on portfolio, right? And so we have a lot. Here's this this one of the fastest growing industries in the space, right? Especially that you see crypto, you know, throwing down. But yet investors aren't jumping in. The big investors, institutional investors aren't touching it yet, right? Which makes it harder as a founder, to raise the capital. And then ultimately the market forces and the headwinds we've been facing the last 12 months with you know oversaturation, inflation, decreased consumption at retail, et cetera, impact a wholesale company like ours in our numbers in the short term, but obviously it's a much longer term gain, right? As we look at the future. So telling that story and getting investors to get excited about it, I think has been, been a challenge, especially as we're all licking our wounds from public markets right now, right? I mean, we get it. Um, and so I think those are kind of the three things, right? It's like product and understanding like, oh my gosh, Everyone wants something different. And can we be an all-in-one solution? Probably not, right? But can we do specific things really well, right? The idea of the raising the capital and then ultimately overcoming just the people themselves and getting them to really value the app and adopt it the way they should. Because the moment they adopt it and see it, they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. I, I don't know why the hell I didn't do this sooner, right? But it takes sometimes, it might take a client, sometimes one of our clients take a year to do that, right? But eventually light bulb goes off and then their clients for life. Got it. And talk
1: about, like I've been... uh Really awestruck and amazed, uh, honestly, about just your knowledge about cannabis in general. Like, I know you got focused on your product and Canatech and that side of things, but just the way you understand everything. What, and knowing that, I'll go kind of back to this question. What do you see? What are some of the biggest challenges that you see facing the entire industry? You know, you talked a little bit specifically about, and you talked a little bit about some bigger ones, but any things that, that you didn't talk about that you see facing industry right now i know obviously the public markets and you know everybody can kind of see that but anything else that sticks out to you
0: you know i think that i think your legacy operators and some of these the smaller craft kind of medium sized businesses are facing a ton of pressure right now right um, if we think about like massachusetts in general right you know we've seen wholesale prices in massachusetts depending on the category fall by about 50%, right? The last 12, 14 months. And what you're looking at is that in the early days of a the market, there's a lot of prosperity, right? But until there's an open market, until product across state lines, right? We're starting to see more consolidation. We're starting to see more market forces create a lot of pressure on the small medium, maybe undercapitalized business for survival, And so, you know, for me, as someone who loves and champions and loves, you know, the small craft product, to me as a consumer, those are the types of farms I might purchase from, right? Ultimately, I think those people are going to be in a really, those businesses are going to be in a really, really tough spot here, right? I mean, in Massachusetts general, right, we've seen prices go down, but there's, you know, about another 400,000 square feet of cultivation space about to come online. And so we're going to see prices fall even more, Right, and so this is—I think—that's where we're going to see the future of this space. Is how are the craft, legacy, smaller, medium-sized businesses going to survive when you've got MSOs and larger companies at scale producing product and at and offering at a lower price in market? Right, I think that's going to be a really tough challenge, and something that we're seeing specifically, like in the Oregon, California, Washington markets, is a lot of these small producers are going under, you know, and it's really, to me, incredibly sad to see that because ultimately though, typically those are the businesses who got us here. They're the ones who championed the industry. They're the ones who were taking that risk before it was legal, right. To get the product out to the people. They're the ones who really have been passionate about this space from the get-go, right. Didn't look at it as just a dollar, right. They looked at it as like, this is my culture and my life, right. It was their life. And so I get concerned that as the markets mature and evolve, the, uh, the legacy kind of crap people are going to get left out. They're going to get squeezed out of the market.
1: Yeah. And on that note, uh, what are your thoughts of big pharma? I mean, just this is an assumption. Thoughts of big pharma and alcohol, tobacco entering the cannabis industry?
0: Yeah, I mean, they already are, right? As, as we see that in different different deals they're doing, right? Um, you know, I think ultimately, you know, like cannabis is a vice industry. And so you would expect alcohol and tobacco to move into this space, right? And I think pharma on the same side, right? They see, oh my gosh, this is a threat. We need to come in and start trying to, you know, I think it's the natural evolution of, of the market as it matures, you know, I think there's a space, I hope, I really hope that there is a space for the legacy craft, small craft producer, as well as the MSL, as well as the pharma, and as well as, you know, maybe the, the big tobacco alcohol, you know, um, I mean, you see, you know, Scott's miracle Grow making moves into the space through, you know, Touchdown Ventures, you know, you see a lot of these groups through kind of third party or whatever, like getting into it and dipping their toes, not directly, but indirectly, right, through funds or things. So it's there, it's happening. Um, I think it's, you know, you're not going to prevent it. I think that, you know, I hope, though, that those companies, you um, recognize what the industry is, what the plant is, right? What it offers, what it provides, you know, who got us here, et cetera, and build some teams and some departments to at least hold on to some of that. Um, but ultimately corporate's gonna come in. Corporate cannabis is kind of gonna be one of the few big parts of the future of the industry. And it's really up to the small craft, smaller producers to band together, to create collectives, to create groups, to create, you know, whatever they can to combine forces to withstand the big the the onslaught and the onslaught's happening, right? I mean, there's no stopping it. Um, but you could slow it or you could counter it if the small. But I do think it takes the smaller companies banding together in ways to uh, you know be able to survive, right? And, I, and it's unique, you know. I think when I was out in Massachusetts, it's like the MSOs versus everybody else. And I think everybody else they really band together and they support one another. They're super community driven, right? and they're fighting it right and they're working hard they're trying to push legislation they're supporting one another they're like interworking together to be successful and it's so cool to see that community and i think that it's needed in some of the legacy markets instead of fighting against each other this they got to come together to be to fight for survival uh and and i think people are starting to open up to it for sure
1: god yeah you know what it made me think about uh alcohol and tobacco getting into the cannabis industry. I think it's similar to you know Coke and Pepsi when they just start buying all the water companies because they're like, oh shit, we probably don't need to quit selling sugar water, which is probably worse than selling something a little bit better. Uh so I never really put those two together until you know you shared that. Um another question, just it's just in general. When the day comes away, and I know it's probably further down the road. When the day comes and you step away from Apex trading and Bushel 44, what's the one thing you want to be remembered for?
0: The biggest thing for me is like, you know, if you think about legacies, right? And I think we've talked about this. I'm a pretty, you know, I have a lot of humility. I don't really have an ego in this. Like, I, I'm like, I just want to win. I want to deliver a great product, right? Like I'm not the, and there's people out there, the cannabis celebrities of sorts, right? They try and build themselves in this moniker, this thing that's this, you know, whatever of of cannabis. And I've never been like that. Right. I'm, I kind of would rather be behind the scenes, building a great product, delivering it, let my team be out there being the ones getting all the accolades and whatever it is. Right. It's just how I, I do it, you know, from more of a humble standpoint. But, you know, I think the thing that I really would like to, you know, Apex to be remembered by, and maybe me is first is for an individual, like, you know, when you're in it, you don't necessarily always realize how hard you do realize how hard it is, but reflecting of like, Oh my God, I had to put so much into this. And it was so hard. We overcame so much. Right. For me as an ninja, I love, you know, someone to look back and go, that is an amazing story. That's someone who literally like went through one of the hardest challenges ever at trade picked themselves up, had the determination drive to do, to do it again. Right. And, and that story in itself to me, like, is, is something that I take a, a lot of pride in, right? And something that I think individually is something I would like to, you know, people to recognize. But the company in general is, we made a really meaningful impact on the space. That's the biggest thing for me, right? It's not, you know, the money is important, right? The impressing investors and having this thing is important. I'm a startup founder. I had an exit. All that stuff is really cool, right? Like it's amazing. And it's a part of it, Right right? I've had businesses, you said, who I had a grower who signed up out of Eugene, Oregon a few years ago. They've been with us for, I think, almost three years now. When I met them, they were on carbon copy for invoices, like writing a bill of lading and leaving out, like leaving a pink slip behind as an invoice for the retailer, right? I was like, dude, what are we doing? Like, we're back in when I was a little, you know, when I was in, uh, I had my first job when I was 14. Like, I remember doing this, like, what are you doing, right? We've seen them be able to scale their triple the size of their grow and triple the size of their their revenue and sales into stores literally by the tech. And they've said, I would have never been able to do this if it wasn't for you guys, right? And your technology, right? We've had other companies say, you know, I wouldn't have been able to scale into multiple states and run this business the way we are without this technology. It's been a backbone of our business and our success. To me, that's the most important thing, right? When I hear that, When I hear from a client, like you guys have the best customer service, the best support possible. Your team is always there. I always feel like you have my back. You're like family. You're almost like my own staff, right? That's meaningful to me, right? That's what really drives me every day. That's what gets me excited. The rest of it is, you know, great, right? Those are side things. But this, at the end of the day, is if we leave, you know, at the end of the day, when, you know, we step away, if we look back and say, Apex trading made a huge impact on our clients. It really helped them be successful, right? It got them to where they wanted to be and ultimately, you know, supported the industry through its changes um, and gave something that was super valuable. That to me is the killer, right? That 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 is the most, like that's if I walked away, even if we were to, Let's say we don't get where we want to go at the end of the day, right? But if I can look back and say we did it with grounded ethics, and value, plant-first mentality, we worked our butts off every day delivered deliver the best product, the best customer service, and we tried as hard as we humanly possibly could, right? And we did make an impact. Even if we don't get that huge exit, I can walk away with a smile on my face knowing like, right, we did it. Like, maybe, yeah, maybe we didn't make $100 million, right, on exit or something. But did we do that? And to me, I think that is something I can still walk away with a smile and and, and a lot of pride. And what we've created, right? And, and it's not, and I would say any founder out there, or somebody's thinking about being a founder, just like, just recognize how hard it is, right? And the struggle it's going to be, uh, and how much grind, determination, grit it's going to take. Um, and that, you know, Randall's right too, it's like, you know, a lot of startups fail, and you have to be willing to look failure in the eye, but know at the end of the day that you did everything humanly possible to get there. Um, and you got to be willing to, to, to take that right and own it. And so that's me, man. I mean, it's me, it's like ultimately, you know, make that meaningful impact on the space and hopefully for the future of the space as well.
1: Love it. I love it. You're a humble leader. I commend you. Uh, getting into some personal stuff. Cause we always kind of want to get into kind of what's behind the leader. Uh, that is a awesome, humble leader what do you do outside of work to keep your life balanced? I know you have uh smaller you know, young children and you've got a lot of that going on, but like, is there, what do you, what do you do to kind of keep yourself balanced? So you're not,
0: you know, too far in on the business side. And it was something, you know, in the trade of days, that was probably one of the best learning lessons I walked away from was like, you have to have a balance. Right. I mean, there were times at trade where I was like under so much stress and working so much. I'm like, grinding my teeth at night and like had to wear a mouthpiece, right? So like grinding my teeth, wake up with like lock jaw or sore jaw. I'm like, what the heck? That's the stress, right? Like if you just live in your work, you will, that will become you, right? You will like, it will overcome you and it will dominate your entire life, right? And I think it's better. You have to be hundred percent dedicated to your work and your company, right? It takes maximum effort to be successful. But at the end of the day, the thing that I really learned was you have to make a balance, right? You have to. I think the first lesson Max and I learned was in this seems simple being present. It is so easy with Slack, Slack specifically, right? I think we all have Slack on our phone and I've read articles li- li- recently about the pushback of Slack and how it creates no work life balance is you got to turn that damn thing off, right? You got to, when you get home, when I go home to my daughter, right, I've got a 19 month old, I dedicate two hours to my family every night when I get home. Right. I make a purpose to be there, to be able to put her to bed, read her a story, give her dinner and then spend an hour with my wife. Right. Um, to give her time. But that time can't be spent also thinking about your phone and your work or looking at Slack and looking at email stuff. You need to be present. I think there's times in my life and in, in the founder life where. You know, I have so much going on that I'll be at home eating dinner. My wife's talking to me and just going for like 15 minutes. I didn't hear a single word she said, right? I'm sitting there, but in my mind, this is where I am. I'm in my brain. And I think it's a, a practice that I'm constantly working at is being present. That's the first step, right? Is just carve out an hour or two and be present in the moment for those people and know that work will still be there at nine or 10 o'clock when you wanna turn your phone back on or look at Slack or check an email, right? But that time is crucial. So that, I think the other piece was, you know, I, I work on weekends a bit in the mornings, but I don't the rest of the days typically, unless it's a pressing, you know, weekend or something. I do that time to do things that are very passionate about, right? So whether that's camping, especially in the summer, right? Which is like a lot of camping, a lot of hiking, shows, concerts, whatever we can to get out and just enjoy life in greater Oregon, right? Where I live. It's beautiful. You got to get out and enjoy, right? Playing around a round of golf, whatever it is, right? Something that you're passionate outside of work, you got to find time for those things, right? Because at the end of the day, you only have one life to live, right? We don't want to just live at work in the whole time. I and mean, some people do, but me personally, I, I, there's other things I really enjoy outside of work as well. And then I think the other, the other piece was really, um, you know, being there on the weekends, but also you know, empowering your team is the next thing. You've got to be willing to like let your team make decisions and be empowered so that you're, everything's on your shoulders. So when you step away that weekend or when you take that vacation time, you really can be away, right? And you've empowered people to make decisions. I think that's the last thing you know that I would say is, is those pieces. So those are things I'm always practicing, always working on. It is so challenging though to balance, right? Because You've got this thing. You have shareholders you're beholden to people, typically friends and family. You have all these things driving you. You don't want to fail. You have all these moving pieces. At the end of the day, you still have a life, right? You still have a family. You still have these things, and you have to balance them. Um, you know, I I think there's entrepreneurs like an Elon Musk or certain people who they that's their work, right? They they work 14 hours a day. They sleep in their offices. They're there on the weekends and different things. And I think you know, maybe that's what it takes to become the world's rich, richest man. I don't necessarily have aspirations to be the world's richest man. Right. Um, I'd love to provide for my family. I'd love to provide them a comfortable life. Right. Uh, I'd like to, you know, obviously work something I love doing that's passionate about then. Hey, you know, if uh, the most important thing to me is my family, right? Like apex training doesn't come before my wife and my kids. Right. Uh, they're the most important thing to me. And while I dedicate probably 80, 90% of my week to my work, That other 10, 20% is crucial. And you got to be all in on that for your family. And and that's, I think, where I'm, something I've learned and something I'm always, as a young entrepreneur, working at and and being very cognizant of in my daily life as well.
1: Man, I appreciate the transparency. And uh, I have a wife, uh, whether I like it or not, I think it's a positive thing. But when I'm in that space that you talked about, like when I'm not there, she'll say, what did I just say to you? So she'll actually test me, and I'll be like, Fuck, shit, I'm "Sorry, I'm I'm I got something going on. I just need to let it go." So uh, all that was landing with me. I'm like, "Oh my gosh! I think uh, I think our brains, uh, you know, work similarly." Um, but so uh, we've reached kind of the last. I'm going to finish up with the last segment. We do this with uh, all of our guests. Um, uh, it's uh, we have a, a Scouts leadership model for hiring, and we believe the best suitors on earth they consistently demonstrate. Ah, uh, three things, and I'll ask questions around these three things. But the three things are being a relentless learner, developing others, and driving results. So I'll just ask like a random a question. Actually, it's not random, but a question from each one of those categories. So learning relentlessly. What what was your biggest life learning to date? And it could be a person, it could be a, an experience, it could be any of that. It's there's no right or wrong answer.
0: Yeah, you know, I think one of my biggest biggest lessons, and a lot of it is, I'm a natural born leader. Right, and so I love leading people, and I think the thing that I've really learned in leadership is that you know, um, you know, you gotta to to be a great leader, right? You obviously have to have humility. You gotta, you know, be at peace, but you gotta be willing to um, put yourself in everyone else's positions as well, and understand that like they're not you, right? Like if I held everyone to my pedestal and what I expect for myself, I would probably be the worst leader and worst boss there is, right? The thing is, is that you have to be reflective of the individual um, and that you have to make sure that every engagement, every way you're working with them, you're tailoring it to, the, to those people, right? And this is in general of like friendships and with family and in work, right? Is that just overall being like empathetic to people having humility, but you know, looking at things, you know, realistic and just being there as like this whole rounded individual. I mean, I don't know if that's like a very good way to quantify a great, I could, if I thought about it more and have more time, I could really pinpoint exactly what I'm trying to get out here. But I think my, you know, in a life lesson is you you have to work hard to be successful, but you got to do it the right way. Right values, ethics, grounded. You never go for the quick dollar if you feel like it's wrong, right? If you have something feels wrong in your gut, it's probably wrong. Those types of things is where I've really learned. I think that's in leadership in life. And then speaking of developing others, who or what developed you the most in your life? It
1: can come off as kind of a similar question, but you know, if, was there a person or, you know, in a, like schooling or anything like that that developed you the most?
0: You know, you know I'm fortunate to have amazing parents, right? Like I talked to my parents every week, if not more often talked about everything, right? I could send them like some of my best friends, right, right there. Um, and I'm fortunate, really, really fortunate. Um, you know, I'd say that my parents uh, were the biggest driving forces behind me and where I am today, right? It was, my dad was, you never quit. When you start something, you never quit, right? I was a huge athlete and there were times where I hated a coach, Right. And we get halfway in the season, begin the season. I'm like, I can't do it. I hate this coach. You know, we're betting heads. We don't align, et cetera. He goes, did you start it? Yeah, you're going to finish it. And you're going to give the maximum effort, right? And so I think the thing, and my dad, and the other thing with my dad is you're going to, you're going to own your your mistakes, right? I remember the first time my dad caught, caught me with cannabis, right? I went to a trip to Colorado with my friends. I think I was 16, uh, bought some weed in Pueblo, you know, from a guy, and whatever. I left a pipe in my dad's car. I took my dad's car to Colorado and I left it in the car. I couldn't find the pipe. My dad's on a road trip for work. Lo and behold, he finds a pipe in his car. He's pretty pissed. He's been driving around the country with a marijuana pipe in his car. So get home. We have the conversation, right? <laughs> I was almost a 4.0 student. I was an athlete. I was in leadership. I was in all the different things you'd expect from a model high school student at the time, right? I just was smoking weed, at, you know, on the weekends or when I could, right? And so um, I think he had this conversation with me. I remember he's like, listen, I'm not gonna tell you you can't smoke, man. You know, he's like, but listen, when you make the, the first thing is you're gonna hold your GPA. You're not gonna dip below 3.8. You're gonna do extracurricular activities and you're gonna stay involved in the same thing. We're not gonna let you just kind of whatever. Okay, let's agree to that. And number two is if you get caught and you get in trouble, you're paying it it's on you. I'll help you, right? We'll help you get a lawyer or whatever, but it's on you. If something happens, you're paying it, right? you're going to do the time. And lo and behold, you know, my first year of college, I got caught with weed and I had to pay, you know, do some community service and different things on that. Right. And so I think that was the biggest thing is that number one, it's like, you're, you're an adult. We're going to treat you like one. We're going to give you responsibility. And at the end of the day, you're going, you know, we're never going to let you quit. Right. We're going to have that drive. We're going to have that motivation. We have that thing. I think for me, that was like, as I've looked towards and reflected on What's made me who I am. It's a lot of those lessons, right? It's the accountability and the pushing my parents had around great. You know, you got to have great, you got to be involved in school. You need to do extracurriculars. You need to be bought in here, right? It creates all these, you know, structure and accountability and lessons of life and stuff. And I think that was great, right? And the other side was, hey, as you become an adult and you do these things, realize that every decision you make could have, has repercussions, right? Whether good or bad. And I think those are the biggest things that, you know, some life lessons I learned. I think my parent, you know, very fortunate, of course, to have those, those strong parents and, and ones that really kind of set up those values and ethics for me as a person. And and I think that's what's, you know, why, why I'm here.
1: Love it. I love it. And then uh, kind of last but not least, what would you say your biggest success is to date? And again, this could be anything personal, professional. I know it's a big question, but... Uh, I love asking it just because I've had such a wide spectrum of answers.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Biggest success to date. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was like an All-State track, you know, an All-State athlete. Um, had offers for, you know, D1, you know, more uh, D1, D2 college football, right? All these things, right? It's a pretty successful athlete. Things. I think, you know, my biggest success uh, to date is, you know, it sounds great. I mean, I think it's my family, man. I, I, you know, it's like I have an amazing wife who's my biggest champion, my biggest support. There's no way trade in or Apex, or I would have made it through trade and started Apex and be where we are if it wasn't for my wife. Right. Um, and then like our beautiful daughter. Right. And, and that I have so much passion, so much love, and so much support. Um, you know, it's like, it's like, gosh, I made a kid. Is that what makes me successful? Right? I have a wife. That's me successful. But I think that that strong family, what we've been able to build, how we're supportive one another, you know, I look at that, I'm like, I'm so fortunate, right, to have that. And and I think that, you know, in general, no matter what happens in professional life or anything like that, my, you know, I still have this amazing family and I'm so fortunate to do that. And I would say that's probably, you know, my biggest success is, is being where I am. Because of the family that we've, we have and the support we have. And that's our greater family too. It's the extensions of everyone is, is so, so amazing. And so I think that's probably it. Yeah.
1: Love it. Love it. And then, uh, where, where can our audience find you? Your, uh, your URL is, is apextrading.com. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, all that good stuff. Yeah. You know, we got an Instagram and social, all those. So yeah, you can find, find us at apextrading.com. Um, you know, I'm just first name at John at ApexTrade.com. So if you ever want to shoot an email or anything, I'm there always responsive. And uh, yeah. And then obviously through, through LinkedIn, if anyone ever like to connect, pretty easy to find me. There's not too many John man loves out there. So for a pretty quick search, there's only going to be a few. So you'll, you'll, you'll find me. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, you've been amazing. I honestly feel like I could, there's so many other questions that I had. I probably got through, I have kind of a general, like loose list of questions. I probably honestly got through like 20% just because of the, the, your answers and just the dialogue was so good. So I appreciate your time. You've been listening to the built on purpose podcast with Max Hansen brought to you by Y scouts. You can find all of our past and future podcasts at dot John, thanks a lot for your time. Really appreciate you. Thanks Max. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to the built on purpose podcast, where on each episode we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. You can hear any of our previous shows 24-7 wherever you get your podcasts.